0: Um, Even if you don't have children in children's ministry, let me just encourage you uh, to just say a word of thanks at some point to Adam and Tricia Reed in particular. Um, They've spent quite a bit of time uh, over there preparing for the kids tonight and uh, just making something that's going to instruct the children and get them to memorize God's Word and uh, to sing with them and uh, just, I know I've heard Adam talk so many times about how he loves to, invest in children, Uh, and, you know, I think it's C.S. Lewis that says children aren't uh, a distraction from more important work, they are the important work, and that's exactly right, and so what's going on over there is equally as important as anything that's going to happen here for sure this evening, and so if you get a chance, just say a word of thanks to them and uh, just show appreciation for what they do, and then all the volunteers over there as well. So I hope that uh, maybe some of you got a chance to relax this afternoon, maybe even watch some football this afternoon as football season is up and running again, which is an exciting thing for most American males, possibly females as well. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a sports guy. I love sports. Um, I, you know, All sorts of sports played growing up. I love to watch sports to this day. Um, I was planning last night on watching a recorded game, and it didn't record, and I was upset, and then it was obviously the Lord telling me, you need to work on your message. And so I went and did that, which I'm thankful, actually, that the game didn't record. But uh, I love to watch sports, and you know, one of the, the great events that happens every four years is the Olympics. And it's just so fun for those 20 or 25 days just to have all different types of sports on television nonstop and having the chance to hear about uh, different competitions that are taking place and watching these athletes that maybe you've never even heard of before. It's really a neat thing. But I'll be honest with you, there's one Olympic sport that I really don't understand how it received status as an Olympic sport. And that's the sport of Olympic walking. That's right. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's actually a sport, a real sport, quote unquote, that real people actually train for. They spend their time preparing to compete in Olympic walking, and you can actually win a gold medal for your country in Olympic walking. I apologize if any of you have relatives who compete in walking professionally, competitively, but sorry about that. It's true, though. You can compete in Olympic walking. Maybe some of you have had the unfortunate experience of turning on the TV during the Olympics thinking, oh, I'm going to watch some amazing athletic feat, I'm going to watch the decathlon, or I'm going to watch weightlifting, or you know, the sprints, or the marathon, or whatever it may be, and someone at NBC has decided that they should show walking instead, and so you're forced to sit there and view people walking around in a circle. And some of you might be thinking as I'm talking through this, well, come on. I mean, I could compete in Olympic walking. I have this little strategy that's going to revolutionize the sport. It's called jogging. Okay? Well, apparently, I don't know much about Olympic walking, but apparently if you, when you're doing this sport, you have to keep, does anybody know the rules for this? You have to keep one foot on the ground at all times. That's what separates walking from jogging or from running. And if they see you lifting both feet off the ground, going a little faster there, then you're immediately disqualified from the event. And I don't know if you've ever watched videos, maybe you should go home and and, uh, look it up on YouTube. If you've ever watched a video of someone, of one of these competitions doing Olympic walking, everyone, because they have to keep both feet on the ground, you know, or at least one foot on the ground at all times, they all look like they're very, very uncomfortable and like they ate something. that just wasn't agreeing with them. And it, they're just in agony as they're contorting and twisting as they're going along doing this, this walking sport. Can you imagine your son or daughter coming home and saying, I've decided I'm going to compete in the Olympics, and it's in walking. Oh, the parental failure that you would feel in that moment. <laughs> Obviously I'm not a huge fan of Olympic walking and in my humble opinion it shouldn't be an Olympic sport, but as I was thinking about that and processing through that, walking is something that as Americans, honestly, we don't think about very often and we really don't do a lot of. The statistics, if the statistics are right, as Americans we, not just competitively, but we walk less on average than any other country in the world, okay? There are other countries that, on average, they take twice as many steps per day as we do. Most of the time, our steps are spent going from the TV to the fridge and back again. That's how we amass our very tiny number of steps. And, hey, I throw myself in that, that category as well. Walking, for us, is just not a normal part of daily life. Uh, you know, we get in our cars, we drive to the office, we take a few steps inside, and we sit down at our desk, and we really don't think about walking as something that that makes up uh, part of our routine every single day. Most of the time, if any of us do any sort of walking, it's for a leisurely stroll in the evening, maybe you go out in the morning and you do some exercise Uh, for your walking, you walk a couple miles, and that's a great thing to do, and obviously a healthy thing to do, but... Uh, it's It's got its particular place in our lives, and we sort of do it, and then we're done with walking, and we continue on with the rest of our day. Well, that sort of uh, interaction with walking was, was simply not the case in ancient cultures. And really, that's not the case in many cultures around the world today. Most other cultures spend a significant part of their day walking. They walk to work. They walk to the market to get their food. And even in ancient cultures, they had to walk in order to go on long journeys. There was simply not any other mode of transportation. If you're lucky, you could go by boat over the ocean, but really walking was it. And so it was a normal part of everyday life. People spent a lot of time walking. And in, in, in other cultures, they still do spend a lot of time walking every single day. And so when we hear someone in Scripture describe our Christian life or our life as a walk, for us we just it doesn't really make sense to us. But in ancient cultures and in many other cultures around the world, when they hear your life described as a walk, oh, okay. Well what is a walk for them? A walk is is the everyday stuff of life. It's normal. It's all that I do, it's part of my routine. It's what gets me where I'm going. It's how I do my work. It's how I make my journeys. It's how I get my food. Walking is everything. It's a part of daily life for me. It's the normal structure and pattern of my existence. It's spent walking. And I want you to try for just a minute here tonight to sort of put yourself in those shoes and imagine that you walk almost everywhere. And as you're doing that, I want you to flip to Ephesians chapter 2 to start out this evening. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll get to chapter 4 in a minute. But think about that metaphor that you occasionally hear in Scripture. Think about what I've just told you about walking. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is really an amazing little section of Scripture here. And what you have in this section is one of the clearest, most succinct statements of our movement from darkness to light, from what we were to what we now are, okay? And I want you to see how Paul bookends this statement here, this section of Scripture, all right? Look at this, verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and he goes on to describe our state of being before Christ. Our normal, everyday pattern of living, our lifestyle, you might say, was spent walking in our trespasses and sins. Now, of course, in the middle of this, you have these amazing passages, but God, who is rich in mercy saves us, all of this happens. And then you get down to verse 10 and he finishes this little section here and look what he says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our walk, our everyday structure and pattern of life used to be spent in trespasses and sins in darkness and now God has saved us and equipped us to spend our life in good works. That's the difference here. Now I want you to move forward in Ephesians to chapter 4, and verse 1. In Ephesians 4, 1, this is a a transitional verse in the book of Ephesians. And what you've got here is a transition from these foundational doctrinal truths in chapters 1 through 3, and then in chapters 4 through 6, you get sort of the application of those of those truths and paul sets you up for that in verse one of chapter four and look what he says i therefore so based on all that you've just heard a prisoner for the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called the application of all this gospel truth is described as a lifestyle a manner of living It's a walk. It's everyday, normal life is spent walking, and it's spent walking according to the calling with which you've been called. Your walk matches your calling. Now look down at chapter 4 and verse 17. Because of what he's just said in verse 1, because our walk, the everyday stuff of life, because that matches our calling... Now we don't walk as those who don't know Christ. And that's what he gets to in verse 17. Their lifestyle is characterized by not this amazing calling, but their lifestyle is characterized by by something much different. Look at verse 17 through 19. Let me read these to you. Now this I said and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 17 talks about their walk, their pattern, their structure of life. What makes up a normal work week for these people? What makes up their pursuits on the weekend? What is normal and instinctual for them? Well, it's described in verses 17 through 19. And then in verse 19 he talks about their practice. This is what they do on a regular basis. They sin because it comes instinctively to them. Why do the neighborhood dogs mess up the bushes in my front yard by lifting their leg? Why do they do that? Because it comes naturally to them. It's what they do. They're dogs. They don't know the difference. It's natural to them. It's who they are. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in verses 17 to 19. This structure of life, this pattern of living, is natural to them. And this pattern of living living here is driven by sensuality. It's driven by hardness of heart. It's driven by futility, by Spiritual blindness by ignorance of God, that's what drives their walk. But as believers, what you see in verses 17 to 19, that's not who we are. That's not how our lives, our walk is to be characterized. That doesn't make sense for us. Look at what Paul says in verse 20. Look at the contrast here, okay? You've seen this lifestyle, this walk in verses 17 to 19, and now you get to verse 20 and he says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. It doesn't make sense as a believer for you to live a lifestyle that is patterned after verses 17 to 19. Why? Because you have a new identity. You have been instructed by Christ. You have learned Christ. You have learned because the truth, at the end of verse 21, the truth, it's not futility. It's not ignorance. The truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Him. Why? He designed human beings to function in certain ways. He made us to flourish in certain ways. And we discover what good living looks like by looking to Him. It's found in Him. The truths of the Gospel that have been expounded in chapters 1-3, through the truths about Jesus Christ bring clarity to our lives. It's like going into a dark room and ripping the shades apart and seeing the light flood in and now you can see the chair the desk, and the table in the room. Everything becomes clear because of Jesus Christ, because the truth is found in him. Now, because of Christ, we can see reality for what it really is. And that is the contrast with the Gentiles that you saw in verses 17 through 19. They walk in the futility of their minds, the emptiness of their minds and their desires. So, everyone in this room who's a believer has been fundamentally changed by learning from Jesus Christ. At the moment of your salvation, you were fundamentally changed from being in Christ and from learning from Christ. Now, here's where the difficulty comes in, and here's why we're doing this series. We see that reality, right? We see what he says here. We see you have learned, you didn't learn Christ like this. Your life is not supposed to look like this in its totality. And we see our new identity in Christ. We see Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. We see that we've been gloriously saved. We see now we're found in Christ and not in our trespasses and sins. We see that we've been born again. Just ponder that phrasing for a second. We've been born again. We have new life. We start over. We're part of a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now we have this massive inheritance. Now we have the Holy Spirit who lives in us and works His holiness in us. We have all of this. All of this is true, as you see if you read the book of Ephesians. And so we see this reality, we hear this this statement of who we are, this identity that we have in Christ. And we see that on Sunday as we come into church and we hear about it. But then Monday, maybe even Sunday afternoon, we feel very differently from that. And for some reason, our reality doesn't match our identity. It's like they're two different things. So what we do is we wake up with anxiety. We wake up with fear. Maybe you struggle with discontentment over and over again. Maybe you go back to lust over and over again. And sometimes it seems like those characteristics determine your walk. And those are more a normal part of your life than this new identity that Paul talks about over and over again in the book of Ephesians. So a lot of times it feels like there's this disconnect between our identity, what we know to be true, and then our daily life as we fight and we battle against sin and we try to put sin to death. And so I think one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life is to try to get our daily experience, our daily lives, to match the identity that we know we have in Jesus Christ. It's it's difficult to live as if that identity were really true. Of course, we know it's true, but it's difficult to live as if that identity is true, as if the Holy Spirit really lives inside of me, as if I really have this massive inheritance in heaven. I've heard someone describe uh, the Christian ethic, what determines how we act every day, as this phrase. Be who you are. So in other words, know your identity and then live in line with that identity. And I think that's a pretty helpful, pretty accurate description of of what determines how we live as believers. So how do we bridge that gap? We know who we are, we study who we are, but then our lives don't often reflect that. So how how do we bridge that? How do we make a little bit more progress this fall... As we go through this series, in connecting our identity to the way we, our ethical lives, how we live out our lives, our walk every single day. How do we do that? Well, I think that Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, are going to be very, very helpful to us in that. I think that's what Paul is out to tell us in these passages. And so tonight, as kind of an introduction to this whole series that we're going to be going through this fall, uh, I'm going to give you three ongoing activities necessary to walk as Christ walked in holiness and righteousness. All right? So three ongoing activities that are necessary to walk as Christ walked in holiness and righteousness. Now, I know I just said that, and we're going to do that, but we're going to get there in a minute. (laughs) Okay? Okay? All right, we'll get there in just a second. I want to explain, first of all, as you look at this, why do we call these ongoing activities? Don't skip over that first part of this here and just start thinking about walking as Christ walked, okay? These are ongoing activities. Why do we talk about them in that way? Well, if you look back in verse 20 of Ephesians 4, it says, you, that is not the way you learned Christ. right, so he says you learned Christ. Christ taught you certain things. And then in verses 22 to 24, here's the content of that lesson. Okay, so here's the lesson plan. He's going to lay out for us the content of what we learned from Jesus Christ. Here's the the process of becoming like Christ. And here's, here's the lesson, the way not to live, as you saw in verses 17 to 19 in futility, in ignorance, in darkness. Here's the activities that need to be a part of your life on an ongoing basis to not walk as the Gentiles walk in verse 17. And the reason that I say this is an ongoing process is that this is not a spur-of-the-moment decision. Okay, A lot of times we read, put off, renew, put on, which... Okay, cats out of the bag. Those are the three activities, right? We'll talk through them, but we read those as if they're spur of the moment things that we do, right? It's not; these are not something that you, things that you decide to do when temptation arises in your heart. The reason that I started out talking about walking is because these things are; these are daily habits. This is a lifestyle. This is your walk. This is what you do naturally all the time. These are a part of who you are. Let me, uh, let me just pose a, a situation that probably will sound very, very familiar to most of you as you're thinking about overcoming sin and temptation and uh, even some of the list of sins that you may have seen that we're going to talk through uh, this coming fall. But most of us, when we talk about sanctification, when we talk about growth and godliness we talk about overcoming sin, we tend to talk about the moment of temptation. Right? We tend to talk about that particular moment. So, let's say we have a guy who is struggling terribly with lust on an ongoing basis. Alright? And so, what we tend to do with him is we tend to give him strategies that he can use when lust arises in his heart. When there's a temptation that comes up. Or maybe we have... Someone who's really, really struggling with anxiety, and it—you it, know—it'll get to the point of panic attacks and just a very, very difficult struggle with anxiety. And so, what we'll do is we'll say, when you feel anxiety coming on, here's some things you can do. You can quote scripture, you can pray, you can count to ten, whatever. You know, we'll give them different strategies. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with those strategies. Those are good strategies to have in your back pocket to use in the moment of temptation. So I don't want to belittle those things, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. I think what Paul's talking about here is something much bigger and much broader than that in-the-moment sort of strategy that you have. I told you at the beginning that I'm a sports guy, right? So indulge me with another sports illustration. I think this works really well for this, okay? So let's say that you have a a young person, or maybe you yourself decide that you've never played basketball before and you are going to learn to play basketball like LeBron James, okay? He's the best basketball player in the world. Now you understand, right, that you're not going to be as good as he is. He's got certain physical qualities that you will never have 6'8, he can jump very high, very fast. Okay, we're not gonna have those, right? So, but you decide I'm gonna emulate him, I'm going to play basketball, and I want to I want to grow in my ability to play basketball, and so I'm gonna look to LeBron James as sort of my model for how to play basketball. All right? So you decide that, and you go to the court and you get a basketball, and you go out onto the court, and you say, Okay. What would LeBron James do right now in this situation on the court? How would he shoot this jump shot? You know, how would he make this layup? And you start thinking about what he would do. And everything you're thinking is once you get out on the court. Well, obviously, you're not going to become a very good basketball player if that's your whole approach to developing your basketball abilities and your basketball skills. The problem with that is not that you're imitating his basketball skills. It's actually that you're not imitating him enough. You're not going far enough in your desire to be a good basketball player. If you really want to learn to play basketball and you want to grow in your ability to play basketball, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to diet right. You're going to probably have to lift weights. You're going to have to go out into the court and you're going to have to do ball handling skills. You're going to have to shoot jump shots every single day. You're going to probably have to watch games of really good basketball players so that you can see what they do and you can watch them and begin to pick up what they do. What I'm telling you is that to grow in that particular skill set, you're going to have to restructure your entire life in order to become a better basketball player. There are certain practices and certain habits that you're going to have to put into place that are going to help you to grow in that. And you can can take that illustration and put it across the board. If you're a golf player, the same thing works there. If you want to grow in your ability to paint, if you're an artist, it works there too. You can't just decide in the spur of the moment what you're going to do and how you're going to address it. It, It has to go much, much further back than that. And I think it's no different with your spiritual life. The steps to growing in holiness and sanctification are not something that we sort of keep in our minds and then we utilize in the moment of temptation. That's not how this works. When Paul here is talking about a walk in Ephesians 2.10 and a walk in Ephesians four one and not walking like the Gentiles walk, what he's talking about is... An entire life structure. It's the pattern of your life. It's the daily habits that you have. It's how you live ordinary life every single day. That's what he's talking about. And he's talking about making certain things, patterns in your life so much that they become an instinct and a second nature to you. Once you shoot a basketball so many times, over and over again, it just becomes natural to you. And that's how the greatest golf players and basketball players and sprinters in the world do what they do on a regular basis, because they put in the time and the training so that it becomes natural to them. Here's a really helpful quote, um, Dallas Willard. I don't know if you've ever read anything by him, but uh, I'm reading a book by him right now, and I find it very, very beneficial. Here's what he said. It is part of the misguided and whimsical condition of humankind that we so devoutly believe in the power of effort at the moment of action alone to accomplish what we want and completely ignore the need for character change in our lives as a whole. The general human failing is to want what is right and important. And listen, there is probably not a person in this room who doesn't want what is right and important. But, at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. I mean, that indictment on me right there. I want to be like Christ, but I'm just not willing to restructure my life and my habits and the pattern of living that I have to be like Him. It's like I'm walking out on the court, and in the moment that I'm playing the pickup game, then I'm trying to think about how he would do it instead of starting way, way back and restructuring the whole thing to be like Jesus. And So that's why I say these are ongoing activities that help us to be like Christ. So what sort of life must we commit to here? What makes up this pattern of living That Paul is calling us to. That's these three activities, I think, here. Alright? So let's get to these. Put off is the first one. Put off. You can see it there in verse 22. Here's what you've learned, alright? There's three main activities that are given here. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, this first activity... This is kind of interesting because this is something that happened to you at the moment of your salvation initially. Okay, you the, the ties were severed with your old man. You've read in other passages of Scripture where the old man has been crucified. All right, So he's dead. He's nailed to a cross. But he's a pretty powerful foe because he continues to exercise influence over us in our daily lives. And so what Paul's telling us here is this has to be a continual pattern of activity for us. What is the old man? The old man is the unredeemed way of life. It's, it's human life apart from God's influence. It's natural human desires after the fall. It's what comes instinctually to us after we've been twisted and bent by sin. That's what the old man And we're not dominated as believers by the old man anymore. He doesn't have absolute control. We're not enslaved to the old man any longer. Praise the Lord. But he's still hanging around, and he's still trying to exercise influence over us. You can see here in verse 22, look again. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Okay. So this is what you were like before you were saved. This is verses 17 through 19, okay? That's what the old man is. It's the practices and habits of life that characterize unbelievers. Look how Paul finishes verse 22, what he says about the old man and his practices, his manner of life. This manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. When we go back to the old way of living, the old way of thinking, the old way of walking, that way of living corrupts our souls, and it does that because we're believing deceitful desires. We're believing the lies of sin. So I think one of the key elements here in putting aside the old man... And avoiding the corruption, we'll talk about that in a second, but avoiding the corruption that comes from the old man is to recognize the lies that the old man and the old way of life are telling you. We have to come to the point where we see these desires that drive the old man, the old way of life, as fundamentally lying to us. These desires, these wants, That's what we tell our kids. It's a want to. I want this. These desires, these want to's, are promising us fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction, the good life. They're continually pouring out these lavish, lavish promises on us. But every single one of those promises, according to Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are deceitful desires. They are wrong. They're lying to you. The old way of life cannot give you fulfillment, cannot give you happiness, cannot bring satisfaction into your life. And when we believe those deceitful desires, look what it says in verse 22. We grow more and more corrupt. We're corrupt through deceitful desires. Now think about corruption for a second. What does that mean? Something grows corrupt as it gets worse and worse. The illustration I've used before is if you leave a tomato on the counter and you leave it there a little too long and you start to smell this kind of strange odor that's coming from the tomato and the skin on the outside of the tomato starts to break down and juice starts to come out of the bottom of the tomato, okay, and you really don't want to eat it at that point, and if you just leave it there, it just gets nastier and nastier, that's corruption. And the more and more we believe deceitful desires, the more and more corrupt we become. And here's what that looks like. That means that our ability to resist sin breaks down. It means our judgment in recognizing sin and the lies of sin breaks down. That means it gets harder and harder to see sin for what it is. As we give ourselves over and over again to sin and we believe the lies and we say, yes, I believe that you're going to bring satisfaction into my life. Whatever that sin may be, it makes it harder and harder to resist the sin the next time. And it breaks down our mental judgment and we grow more and more corrupt. And our lives look more and more like verses 17 through 19. And soon those deceitful desires become a habit. It becomes natural to us. It becomes the way we live life, it becomes a walk for us. Normal, everyday, routine life is growing more and more corrupt because we're believing the lies of sin. And so then you end up waking up in the morning and it seems like the most natural thing in the world to bark out some frustration at your wife because she didn't make the coffee the way you wanted to. Or it becomes the most easy and ordinary thing in the world to yell at your kids. And you don't even notice it anymore. You don't even realize it because you've been believing the lies of sin for so long and the corruption has happened so much that it's ruined your judgment and your ability to recognize the sin for what it is. And so I think Paul here speaks of sin and the old man in this way because he wants us to begin to recognize these lies. And the way to put off the old man is to know the old man for what he really is. And what he's really promising to us. And he's promising corruption to us. Not holiness. Not Christ-likeness. When we believe those lies of sin, we are buying something that sin is selling. And the price is higher than we can ever, ever But putting off the old man, believing the truth, which we'll get to in a minute, recognizing the lies of sin, that's not something that just happens in the moment. That's not something you just all of a sudden do when you're under duress in temptation. It's a walk. It's a lifestyle. It's something that comes more and more naturally to me over time. It's a practice that I incorporate into my life. And that leads us to our second ongoing activity here. Put off and renew your mind. Renew your mind. Putting off the old, deceitful man doesn't just happen as we suddenly decide that we're going to change lifestyles and we recognize how deceitful sin is and we think, okay, good, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to put off the old man and I'm going to be good to go then. This happens as we are fundamentally changed from the inside out. And that's what this is talking about. So in verse 22, we talked about how giving ourselves to sin more and more, believing the lies of sin, grows us more and more corrupt. Well, now look at verse 23. We're to put off your old self in verse 22, and here's in verse 23. We're to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This, this describes our change in thinking. And this change in thinking, this change at the most fundamental level, changes us for good. So if we believe the lies of sin, we grow more and more corrupt, which ends in destruction. If we believe the truth and we renew our minds and we begin to think correctly and that becomes more and more natural to us and more and more of a pattern for us, then we grow and that's good for us. It's the opposite of corruption. And the end of that is Christ's likeness, as we'll see in verse 24. But this renewal that takes place, it takes place in a particular location that you focus on. That's in verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is an essential activity for believers, to constantly have your mind renewed. A lot of times we don't think about the ways that original sin, the fall of Adam and Eve, the, ways, the myriad of ways that that has affected us. But one of the most damaging ways that that has affected us is it has corrupted not just what we think about, but it has corrupted the very way that our thinking works. We don't think correctly anymore. It's not just that, that we occasionally use a hammer and bend the nail when we hit it. Oh, man, I just messed up there. Ah, oh, well, I guess my thinking was off. It's that the hammer is completely bent out of shape, and we just can't ever nail the nail in correctly. That's the way our minds function under sin. You could see it back in verses 17 and 19. Their, the futility of their minds, the ignorance that is in them, the hardness of their hearts. All of that characterizes the way we think. One of my absolute favorite passages in Scripture, it's becoming a more and more uh, favorite passage, I guess we'll say, is this one, Proverbs fourteen twelve. I love this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, don't read this verse as saying, we know what we're doing is wrong and we choose to do it anyway. Now, that's true. We do that a lot of times. That's open rebellion. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says that there's a way that seems right. It looks good. It actually looks morally upstanding in some cases because our minds have been so twisted and bent out of shape that somehow now we rationalize this as making perfect sense. And it seems right To us. It seems good. Picture the couple sitting in the minivan driving somewhere. She says, You need to turn left here. He says, No, it's right. I need to turn right here. She says, Are you sure that you shouldn't consult the GPS? And he says, I am so sure that I need to turn right here. But if I'm wrong, I will buy you that new outfit that you've been wanting. Thirty minutes later, he knows that he should have turned left, and she knows that she's getting a new outfit. That's exactly what it's talking about. We're so sure of ourselves. It seems right. And yet, even in that surety, that sincerity, we're completely blind to the reality of what sin does, and to the effects that it has on us. Sin is lying to us, and our minds go happily along with that lie. But one of the glories of salvation is that now we're not enslaved to those lies anymore. Now we've received the truth in Jesus Christ, and now we can renew our minds every single day with the truth. Those old patterns of thinking are still hanging on, The old way of seeing the world is still there. But what we need is a brain transplant every single day. And we need to have the truth put into our brains all the time, into our minds, into our way of thinking. In your daily life, just think basic level about this. What do you do when you encounter deceit? I mean, if you have kids in your house, okay, and one of them says... She had the toy first. What does the other one do? Immediately gives his perception of the truth, of the reality of the situation. Deceit is always combated with the truth. And that's what we're saying here. And we have the truth in the Word of God. And so if we know sin's lying, we know our brains and our minds and our way of thinking is twisted and bent out of shape by sin, and it's still holding on, then we have to combat that with the truth. And that's what Paul's saying here: be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Mind renewal is absolutely vital to the process of change. You can't just grit it out. You can't do it. You have to fill your mind with truth and you have to think correctly. But most of us aren't there yet. It's a process, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this series this fall. If I were to just say to you tonight, okay, I want everyone to take out a piece of paper and I want you to write down three lies that sin is telling you that lead you to be discontent with your life circumstances. And then I want you to write down three gospel truths, three truths about Christ that counteract those lies. How would that go for us? It might get sticky. It might get difficult. So we always need to be filling our minds with the truth, pondering these things and renewing our minds with the truth. So how does that happen? I mean, it's like every sermon is a read your bible and pray every day sort of sermon, you know? So I could stand up here tonight and I could I could yell and scream about reading your bible more. I could do that. I could give you strategies for studying your bible. And, and we do that at Timberlake we receive a lot of good teaching here at Timberlake. Um, you know I, I could tell you how important it is for you to be at church but hey you guys are here on Sunday night listening to expository preaching morning and evening so you know I could do all that try to encourage you with that try to encourage you to apply God's word to your life when you hear preaching. I could do all that but let me just ask you two questions two simple questions here about renewing your mind do we we have the humility to recognize our need for daily mind renewal? Is that something that that, you even, that we even process that we need? Is it there? And then secondly, do we actually believe that if we give ourselves to this book, wholeheartedly, give ourselves over to knowing and understanding this book, even the confusing parts of like Leviticus, if we give ourselves to this book and understanding it, that mind renewal will happen. Do we actually believe that that is the case? Do we have the humility, do we have the faith in this book that our minds will be fundamentally changed if we give ourselves to this book? And that brings us to our last activity here tonight. Put on. Almost done. Of course, it's it's not enough here. When you're looking at this passage... It's not enough to just stop sinning, right? The goal is is not to just get you to quit. Okay? Stop it. Stop sinning. Stop lusting. Stop being anxious. Stop being discontent. Don't do that anymore. That's not the end game here. That's the first step in what Christ is looking for in our lives. It's not enough to just recognize the lies of sin. And it's not even enough just to come to church and have your mind filled with truth and to read God's word on your own and have your mind renewed. That's not the end game here. It's not the final goal. As our minds are renewed, we need to begin to develop positive spiritual virtues in our lives. And that's what Paul says here in verse 24. Renew your minds, verse 23, verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the new self or the new man, as some of your Bibles probably say? Well, the new man is created at the moment of salvation. It's being born again. You're part of the new creation, as Second Corinthians five seventeen says. And this new man that is created has a particular shape to it. He's created with the goal of being in the likeness of God, as you can see there in verse 24. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God. This is is what humanity was originally intended to be. Adam was created in the image of God. He was created to reflect God's rule and to reflect God's character to the world. And then the fall into sin shattered that image, didn't eradicate it completely, but shattered that image. But now, when we are saved, the new self comes and we begin to be put back together into the proper image that we're supposed to be just like Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God, as Colossians 1 tells us. And so as we begin to grow, as we begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ, verse 24 says, we put on true righteousness and holiness. We're not there yet, but this is a process. This is, this is a walk. This is something that we're doing for our entire lives. The new self is created, and we continue to put on this new self. We continue to appropriate that in our lives. We continue to be who we truly are. That's what he's telling us here. Now, putting on these positive characteristics. There's an old Christian word for this that we don't use very often. And to be honest with you, I had not done a lot of reading on it until this past year, which is very unfortunate. But there's a word that we should be using to talk about these things. And that word is virtue. It's a great word. I'm not sure why we don't love it sometimes. But virtue is the word. What is a virtue? I think this is a helpful definition. It's an enduring pattern of feeling and thought, choice and action and perception. Alright, let me flesh this out for you here. Because I think this is what Paul is talking about in verse 24. A virtue is a pattern. Okay, it's a habit. It's it's something that sticks around, okay? And thus, the word habit, right? It's something that sort of comes more and more naturally to you. It's something that's there, that's a part of your character. It's a part of who you are at the deepest part of your being. But it's not just a habit of behavior. It's not just brushing your teeth every day, although that's a good thing to do, right? That's It's not just a habit of behavior that you do. It's not leaving a tract at a table or... You know, witnessing to someone, that's not the total sum of what we're talking about when we say the word virtue. It involves behavior, certainly actions, but it involves feelings. It's feeling the right way, letting your emotions be guided by God's word. It's the way you think. It's the way you even see the world. Do you know the way you see the world, the way you feel compassion toward people, can become a virtue in your life, a pattern a habit that is there in the deepest part of your being. And so as we put off the old man, we renew our minds, we start to think differently, then we put on virtues. We begin to practice what we know we need to do and we regularly put on virtues here. And We begin to change in all these areas. This author fleshes this out a bit more. Um, And the, the illustration that he uses here, he's talking about the virtue of love And the illustration he uses is a parent's love for a child. Okay, Look at all the ways that he describes this. A virtue is a habit that includes all of these things. Actions. You take care of your child even when you don't feel like it. right? So a virtue is something that when you don't feel like it, you do it anyway. It's natural to you to do it. It's emotion. You are often overtaken by feelings of tenderness and delight perceptions you understand your little children better than they understand themselves that's a virtue that's that's a virtue of wisdom that's there choices you choose to get out of bed and go to the children's room even when you'd much rather not and thoughts you think differently more thoroughly and carefully about your children than about anyone else in the world that's what the virtue of love looks like from a parent to a child and that is something that an ongoing process of of developing. A virtue is not something that just sort of happens at the moment of temptation. Okay? It's not something that you just sort of all of a sudden like, oh, I'm going to be virtuous now and not give in to this lust that is tempting me. That's not what a virtue is. A virtue is a fundamental character change that happens before the moment of temptation. It's something that takes place in your life that prepares you for the moment of temptation. It's a change of lifestyle. It's a change of walk. Your walk is different now. It's putting on Christ-like attitudes, actions, feelings, and perceptions. And it's amazing what Paul does here. He describes what virtues look like. Look at verses 25 to 32. We'll just pick a couple of these out. All right? He gives you the what you're supposed to put off, and then he gives you the virtue that you're supposed to put on. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Look down at verse 28. Let the thief steal no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You can see in verse 28, that's not a one-time sort of resisting temptation. That's a complete change of lifestyle. You go from being a thief to being someone who actively labors and shares things. It's a total change of actions, feelings, perceptions, desires. All of it changes there. Verse uh, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a change in lifestyle. You don't just all of a sudden turn off the corrupt talk. You have to change your mind, renew your mind, and then begin to put on the positive virtue there. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So you can see all those put off and put on, put the corruption off, the deceitful eyes, put on the the new virtues there. So over the next few months, what we're going to do on Sunday nights is we're going to take one particular sin area, and the guys are going to, the different guys that are going to be preaching are going to be running these sin areas sort of through this grid, not exactly, but they're going to be showing you, put off these lies, don't believe these lies, renew your thinking, and put on virtue. This is what the positive characteristics look like in your life. So you might be thinking, as we finish up tonight, you might be thinking, well, that's great. All the sins are listed out. I'll just come to the ones that I know I struggle with. Right? And it gives me some free Sunday nights because I don't struggle with a couple of those on the list. First of all, I think you probably need to come if you're saying that. Um, But one of the key aspects of putting off and putting on and this character formation that we're talking about here is helping others in the body of Christ do this. You and I cannot do this alone. We're not out on an island trying to do this this change of walk and of lifestyle. This is something that has to take place with other believers. You need other believers and other believers need you. So even if you have never had a discontent bone in your body, come on that night, learn, and learn how to help those around you who are struggling with that particular sin. So let's do this together. Let's grow in this change of lifestyle together this fall. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so kind to us to free us from this description that we see here in verses 17 through 19. What a terrible way to live life in the futility of our minds, in ignorance, in hardness of heart, driven by sensuality, practicing impurity and evil deeds, Lord. What a terrible way to exist. And we thank you for saving us from that. But you did not save us, Lord, to just leave us there, leave us struggling with these things, but you saved us so that we could put off these these characteristics, these lies. We could renew our minds as we behold Christ. And we could put on virtues that we were meant to embody. This is the way Adam was meant to live. This is the way Jesus Christ really lived. And as we imitate him and shape our lives after him, Lord, I pray that you would help us to put on these positive virtues every single day. Help us to together encourage one another and help one another along this path, this walk that we have. We love you. Thank you for your good grace to us. In Christ's name.